0: my goal is to be a fearless leader i do not want to operate from a place of fear i do not want to be i am more than happy to compete at whatever level in whatever way but competing from confidence rather than competing from fear
1: and this is scaling clean the podcast for clean economy ceos investors and the people who advise them i'm your host mike casey I run Tigercom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. In each show, we bring you usable insights on how to scale and run clean economy companies from the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful firms in your sectors. Abby Hopper is in her fifth year as the head of the Solar Energy Industries Association. It's the U.S.'s main solar trade association that's widely known by its acronym, SIA. Abby SIA's third CEO, taking over the reins right when the avowedly anti-renewables Trump administration took power. She's a lawyer by training and a veteran of several top regulatory posts at the state and federal levels, and that includes leading the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in the years that followed the Deepwater Horizon oil spill disaster. In short, Abby's developed an expertise in leading teams within organizations that have complex structures and face big existential challenges. I like to think of her as Clean Tech's Rafting Guide to Running Class 5 Rapids. With that, I'd like to welcome my friend Abby on the show. Welcome, Abby. Thank you, Mike. It's so good to see you. How would you describe the arc of your career to date?
0: My arc is, uh, there is a bit of a... um, recalibration right in the middle, right? So I um, I graduated from law school, had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a tax and corporate attorney. And so I went to a big law firm. I was a tax and corporate attorney. And then I started having children. And so that kind of put a little bit of a wrench in my plans. Um, so I left my big law firm and I went to a little law firm. And I kept being a lawyer. and And so I was, you know, doing the sort of, if you think about a graph, it was a, a line going up, right? Like my experience was growing and my income was growing and my, you know, standing in the firm was growing. And then I had the third kid and I thought, oh Lordy, I, this is a lot. I don't think I can do three kids under the age of five and this kind of practicing law. And so I stepped off of the law firm track. And so I feel like I went, Err! Like just a big old <laughs> dive down, like you know, the stock market crash. Um, and I thought that's where I thought I was gonna live down there in the depths for a while. But it feels like my career is just about to get started. Like I feel like I'm really ready to hit my stride. Um, and so I see, you know, a couple more decades of upward growth from myself.
1: So you went from having a vision of being a high powered law firm attorney. And those attorneys are typically not known for managing big teams of people. So then you take a break from intensity, at least, and then you go back into a career which lands you actually running teams of people. What were the big lessons you carry forward?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I think that first time I was anyone's boss, not in a professional setting, I was like the deputy head lifeguard at a pool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and i oversaw other lifeguards um i don't know that i took much lessons from that other than like being in charge of scheduling and making sure i got like the best shifts um which is not a lesson i would uh take now that was a lesson i learned then um as i think about you know I, you're exactly right i was a lawyer and lawyers don't manage people right i manage half of an admin for the first 10 years of my career that was my management experience um I did I spent three years out between law between college and law school and I um, worked in a number of jobs in uh, this sort of social service world I was uh, I worked in a domestic violence shelter um, for a, a couple of years and and a domestic a domestic violence sexual assault agency and I did supervise people there um, volunteers and younger well I was 23 and 24 but sort of more junior staff if there was such a thing um, I think I was a really terrible manager, like horrible, like horrible, horrible. I had really strong opinions about what everyone should do and how no one was doing it like I would do it. Um, i found that's not a particularly effective way to lead teams. It's <laughs> 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 <to, to laughs> <your> constant criticism. <laughs> um, but as I think about my, like sort of once I jumped in and started actually having teams to manage, uh, what I learned really quickly was to recognize people's strengths. I think if I I had to tell you what one of my superpowers is, I have learned that I am really, really good at identifying what people's strengths are and finding ways to let them shine.
1: How did you learn to do that? My daughter's 19 years old. She wants to own her own business at some point Mm -hmm. in the future. What advice do you have for people her age? particularly women her age, about learning to be someone's boss better and faster than you did?
0: That's good. I have a 19-year-old daughter
1: also. Um,
0: I would tell our young women to be really clear about what they're very good at. And they're very good at some things to be really clear about what they're not particularly good at and to identify other people who can complement their skill set. I think they do it. I think it happens a lot kind of by accident, right? Like you'll, you'll like I watched my um, daughter who's a freshman uh, in college and she will do a project with someone, you know, she's really good at research and writing and she'll do a project with someone who's really good at putting together the PowerPoint, right? They, they sort of intuitively know how to find people that match their skills. Um, those are some of the things I would say. I mean, I think there's a lot more, there's a lot of other things I would say to people that are thinking about how to be a CEO, Um, but that's the first thing I would say.
1: What drew you to renewables?
0: It was more a function of that's what the job was, honestly, and I needed a job. Um, I am not a lifelong environmentalist, right? I didn't recycle until I was older. (laughs) I was telling someone earlier, uh, my, when I was young, my aunt stopped giving me presents and started making donations to environmental groups for my birthday. And I was not happy about it, right? Like I, this is, I, I've come to this, I'm now a true believer, but I came to it much later in life. Um, so it was like the job led me to renewables. And then I realized, wait a minute, this is the future, right? This is, if I'm just thinking about my career and where I see growth and where I see opportunity, it's for me, it's clearly in renewables. I think that's where the world is going. Um, but it also it also has the benefit of that I feel really strongly about it. My first, I mean, you've you've heard me say this, Mike, because we first met in the offshore wind world. Like it's my first love, right? Like offshore wind is my first love. Um, I am completely and have been for over a decade um, entranced by the the power and the beauty of offshore wind. <laughs> it is just i mean it it is such a clear manifestation of sort of harnessing this incredible energy that our earth produces um in a really sustainable way um so that was like that was the first emotional reaction i had and from that emotional reaction that made me see the world in a different way and so i am a true believer for all the business reasons but also for all the know climate reasons and and leaving our world in a better place for our, our children and our grandchildren. But um but it all happened when I first saw offshore wind. <laughs> it was love at first sight. It was love at first sight. And then I got to go visit it offshore. I got hopped in a couple of helicopters and
1: I was just so happy. From what you've seen, mm-hmm. are there leadership challenges that are unique to a trade association versus being a CEO of a company?
0: Yes. I think so. I think two, two things are pretty different. One, I analogize being a trade association um, executive and CEO, it's much more akin to being a lawyer in private practice, right? When you're a lawyer in private practice, you have a multitude of clients, all of whom are paying you, all of whom would like your attention right now, all of whom, uh, depending sort of on their mood and, and personality, I feel like they need to be your number one priority at that moment. And I and I think traded, you know, companies that are paying a trade association to advocate for them have a very similar mentality. I am your member, I pay you, your job is to respond to me right now. Um, and so helping my sort of myself managing that and helping my team manage that part of our relationship with our members is a really important leadership tool. Um, I also think, you know, really the point of a trade association is to be the tip of the sphere, right? Like I'm the one who needs to go out and take the arrows. That That is my job. That is what I get paid for. That is what I will happily do. Um, but I don't do it. Uh, like we're not mercenaries, right? We don't do it just because someone tells us to. And so navigating that complex conversation with member companies, like we still need to be credible, right? We still need to care- I do care about the reputation of my organization. I care about the the what, what I say today and how that will affect what I'm going to say in six months, right? And whether those same doors are going to be open to me. They're open to me today. Um, sometimes our member companies would prefer that I only think about today and right what what the message of the day is and how they would like it delivered today. Um, I imagine that. Uh, CEOs of private companies have a variety of different challenges they're managing, but uh, I think those are two that seem really different.
1: When you are going to take over the leadership team of another organization, another company sometime in the future, what lessons are you going to take with you about selecting the right team?
0: It is one of the most challenging and most satisfying parts of leading a team is, is Finding the right people and putting them in the right seats, and that's how I've learned. I build really amazing teams. I, I, I'm totally biased, but I do <laughs> I believe I do. Um, I will tell you, I, I definitely build very high performing teams. Right? Look at our match like objective metrics, high performing, um, but also culturally, just a really good place to work. Um, I give people space, right? To show me who they are and show me what they can do and show me how they like to work and how they choose to communicate with me. Um, When I go to another organization, um, just paying really careful attention to who's doing what and how they're doing it, right? Are the difference between what it says on the paper and how things actually get done? And um, that's important. It's really important for me to figure out early on, like someone within the organization that I can trust. It's a
1: lot of gut feeling. Any metrics or any tracks in the snow that you have found are reliable indicators of who to trust? I pay a lot of attention
0: to the money, right? Like I believe that budget reflects policy, right, and priorities. And so I always make it my business to understand the finances of whatever organization I'm involved with, and especially if I'm running it. <laughs> um, I pay a lot of attention to transparency. So I my experience has been that um, colleagues that share information are, I'm gonna have a better working relationship with them. Colleagues that keep information tight and only dole it out in small pieces when I ask the specific question that like and they give me the specific answer, those are probably colleagues I'm not gonna um, have a great working relationship with. Um, and that doesn't always come out on the first day, but it comes out pretty quickly. Uh, when I got to see uh five years ago, I met with every single person on the staff and asked them sort of a, a number of questions. And one of the questions I asked was, you know, what makes you the most excited about your job? Right, what do you, what do you love about your job? And what do you wish were a little bit different? I did not anticipate sort of the the differentiation uh, among the people by asking everyone the same questions. I followed those lines that people had given me and sort of explored and watched and paid attention. You know, people will tell you, "Oh, I, I hate being managed. I don't like it when my manager asks me questions about what I'm doing," and I'm like, hmm, "That seems a little odd." Or, you know, I'm so excited about this new thing that catches my attention.
1: Hiring is always cited as one of the most challenging parts of leading companies or organizations. What have you learned about hiring? It's been a really interesting growth
0: area for me, actually, because I am one of those ones that tries to walk the walk on diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, not just say all the words. And so hiring is an opportunity for me and our organization to practice what we preach. And so I have learned a lot in the last few years about everything from how we describe what the role is, how we advertise what salary is, where we post things, the kind of people that are doing the screening, the initial conversations. Um, when I first first started being in a position to hire people, I talked a lot like everyone did that I knew talked a lot about fit and whether people would fit with us. I don't know. It just made sense to me. And I've had my ideas challenged somewhat on like whether fit is really an appropriate thing. Right. I usually feel like we fit with people who are very similar to us, right. They have similar backgrounds, similar life experience, similar perspective. That's why they feel so comfortable. right? (laughs) That's why they're comfortable. And so I've had to challenge myself to, um, be willing to be a little uncomfortable and, or a lot uncomfortable and not look for fit in that same kind of way. I still hire people that I think will add to the culture, but not people that are just comfortable to me. Um, that's been a real, that's been, I would say the biggest change, um, in hiring. I'm also, I mean, I practice, I, I try to pass along the gift that was given to me, right? People took a chance on me. Like, and I will, I will always hire the person that I think is the most curious, the most um, like intellectually stimulated by the role. And it could be any role, right? It could be like, we're gonna hire for an office administrator soon, right? To sort of manage the office it's that from the Northeast policy position to, you know, whatever the, we just brought on a vice president of equity. Like I will, I, I don't need, I hired a, my chief lobbyist, didn't know anything about solar when I hired her, but I knew that she was the best person for the job because she knew how to lobby. She knew how to lobby and she could learn about solar. Right. And so that I don't know that everyone in the solar industry hires that way. I think a lot more are going to have to, if we're going to grow at the rates we want to grow, but, um, I do. I always will hire who I think is the smartest person.
1: Uh, and, and I can happily teach them solar. What's the guidance you'd offer on firing people? Do it, do it. 100% do it.
0: Earlier in my career, I was HR counsel for my, the agency. Um, it was a lot of other things too, but that was one of my duties. And I was shocked by the reticence of organizations to hold people accountable. Uh, I don't share that reticence. I, don't, I My guidance is you deserve to have the team in place that you want and um, you know, don't do anything illegal, but don't be afraid to make change.
1: Hardest interview question you were ever asked, and the most valuable interview question you have ever asked a candidate. So when I, I uh, when I sort of took that step off of
0: the law firm career path, I became the deputy general counsel at the Maryland Public Service Commission. I didn't know anything about energy. I didn't even really know what the Maryland Public Service Commission did. It was great. That was the gift that I needed that I didn't know I needed, and it was awesome. And I loved it. And then. Two years later, I got an email from a friend who happened to be the governor's general counsel saying, hey, um, would you be interested in interviewing to be the governor's energy advisor? And I honestly thought she had the wrong Abby Hopper. Like, I was like, what, me? Are you sure? Like, did you, really? Um, so I said, sure. So I, the hardest interview question I had, I'm walking into the governor's office in the Maryland State Capitol and his chief of staff Whispered in my ear, hey, he really likes offshore wind. He's gonna ask you how to start an industry here in Maryland. That was the hardest question I ever had. (laughs) Because he did ask me, and I was like, oh, I don't even remember what I said. But I whatever I said, I got the job, and then we are we did go on to pass like groundbreaking legislation. But uh that that was not ready for that question. Um, I, I literally ask every candidate I interview. So I have my organization small enough that I interview every single person before we hire them here. Um, I always ask, I always ask them what job they think they're applying for. Like, what do they understand it to be? And, uh, it's very telling. It's very telling both in terms of how well my team has articulated what the actual job is. It's telling in terms of what they pick up and are interested in. And it's telling in terms of like the level of enthusiasm that they talk about it. Um, and it provided some like standardization, right? Which as we all know is important if you're thinking about how you're equitable and in, in how you're approaching hiring. Um, I always ask people how they like to be managed, always. And again, it's there's no right or wrong answer. It just gives me more information about the ways in which they communicate or don't communicate or receive information or provide feedback, that's, those are two things I always want to know about every candidate I interact with.
1: Last question. You and I recently talked about what it's like to be in our fifties and given what you know now, do you think there's an ideal age to lead a large organization from a life wisdom standpoint?
0: No, I just, as a side note, I am so comfortable with my age, like, I worked hard to get here, right? Like, I worked my ass off to get here. I am totally happy with where I am. And I'm super excited about what the next 50 years will bring. Um, like I said, my, my career is just about to get started. Um, I don't know that there's an exact age. I, as I reflected on your question, um, I think there is experiences that one should have before one is in a position, a a big leadership position. And one of them is to have failed, honestly. Like I have failed in uh, various ways in my career, right? Like in in situations, like a particular matter or particular instance where there was certainly failure. Um, I failed like interpersonally. And because of that, I have a developed humility about my own abilities and capabilities, but also, I mean, I keep coming back to the word grace. Like I, other people are going to fail too. I think a good leader, I think a strong leader kind of recognizes that we're actually managing human beings and not workers or employees or whatever euphemism we want to use. Like we're actually managing human beings. And so human beings are common with all their, strengths and flaws and being able to, to continue to motivate them and get the best out of them while they're being their human selves is really important. So for me, having my own failures and my own sense of humility and my own, um, having received grace and being willing to give grace is important. Um, but I also think a lot about, um, like my goal is to be a fearless leader. I do not want to operate from a place of fear. I do not want to be, I am more than happy to compete at whatever level in whatever way, but competing from confidence rather than competing from fear, making decisions, And that's why you asked about firing, you fire, fire fast. Like at, here at we, SIA, we do stuff and sometimes it doesn't work out and that's okay, right? I just I um just as a human and as a leader, I don't want to lead from a be in a place of fear. And so we th- that that is not an age specific <laughs> attribute, but I think it is one of those sort of life attributes that makes people good, um, good leaders. So yeah, I um that I think it's more of an experience than an age, but those are that's what I look for. Like I, you know. I I have bosses, and I imagine I'll have bosses of some variety for the rest of my life. And when I think about who do I want to work for, who will I follow as a leader, it's people with those characteristics.
1: Abby Hopper, this has been an absolute delight. I have just loved having you on the show. Thank you for joining us and sharing with us with such humility and grace what you've learned in your several decades of career and being so impressive so thanks for leading the industry thanks for being on the show we just really appreciate it we appreciate you and what you're doing oh mike
0: it's such a pleasure and i appreciate
1: the opportunity to chat with you thank you this is scaling clean a production of TigerCom. i am mike casey and i thank you for joining us you can subscribe to our show for free anywhere you get your podcasts While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.